Isaiah 45 is our text this morning. Many years ago, A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, wrote these words that have never left my mind. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He goes on to say, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion can be greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is God himself. The most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always, he says, always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. A conception of, of deity is universally innate. We are hardwired in our very beings, made in the image of God, as worshipers of God, to know that God exists and that he is a powerful being who has created all things. And yet, of course, human nature, being fallen, takes that knowledge, that inherent knowledge of God, and perverts it. We twist it. And we begin to conceive God in ways that are not in keeping with his own self-revelation, and in fact are, are divorced from reality. We make, in essence, idols. Sometimes those idols are carved images that represent the powers of God or the gods. Sometimes they're completely mental. They're in our minds. We have certain conceptions of God that are false. And we turn ourselves, our hearts, to worship those false gods, those false conceptions, and we are led greatly astray. The truth is, in order to have hope, real hope as God's people, what we need more than anything else is to behold our God. And this is the way that Isaiah began this passage of hope that began back in Isaiah chapter 40 and will run really through the rest of the book. How does he start to give the people of God hope? What's the first thing he says to them? The first thing he says is, lift up your eyes and see your God. See who he really is. And that's why the foundational section, the first part of this passage of hope, chapters 40 to 48, is theology. It's the doctrine of God, theology proper, who God is. Lift up your eyes and see who your God is. That's the foundation of a Christian's hope. He will never have hope until he sees God clearly. And Isaiah 
unfolds this theology for us by the inspiration of the Spirit that we may see and behold Him. What gives us hope is not, first of all, what God has done for us. He will come to that in chapter 53, but the foundation of that is who God is in His own being. For, of course, God may have good intentions toward us and and wish to do good things to help us, but if He is not God alone, if he is not sovereign over all things, then all of God's good intentions are in vain. And we've got to be grounded, first of all, in this. Who is this God? He is God alone. He is sovereign over all. He is the creator of all things. He is the only God. He declares his singular nature, his singular character as God by challenging the idols of the world to... to Speak what will be, and then to bring that to pass. For he says, no other God has done so except the Lord God Almighty. This is our God. And this is why chapter 40 begins with the foundation of our hope in theology itself. Who is God? And the most pervasive characteristic of God that's in view in the passage that we are looking at today is that he is the creator. And in particular, that he is the creator of all. That everything, get this, everything that exists and everything that comes to pass has as its ultimate author, God. This is what's in view. God, the creator of all. Now, let me show you why I'm saying that. Look at the text. We're in chapter 45. And our text is going to be from verses 7 to 13. Just look at the words that he piles up, these terms for creation, for God's creative work. Verse 7, right in the beginning, I form light. That word form comes from Genesis chapter 2, when God formed man, right? I form light and I create darkness. That word create, borrowed from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being. Another word lifted from Genesis chapter 1. I make well-being and I create calamity. And then if you go to the end of the next verse, verse 8, he says, I, the Lord, have created it. And then in the next verse, verse 9, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? God forms, he makes, he creates, he brings into being. Verse 11, look at the middle of verse 11. Thus says the one who formed him. And the end of verse 11, the Lord speaks of the work of my hands. Speaking of even the contemporary Um, personages and the activities of, of Israel's day, the work of my hands. And verse 12, I make the earth, I made, excuse me, the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. 13 times in these seven verses, the Lord uses terminology of creation. He is the God, the one and only being who creates everything, everything that is, and everything that will be. 
This is an expansion, of course, on what the Lord has already revealed himself to be. If you look back in chapter 45, down to the 25th verse, 24th verse, 45, 24, I am the Lord who made what? Oh, do we see it? I am the Lord who made all things. He is the creator, the creator of all, not only of all that exists, but of all that happens. In other words, another way to say this is not only that God is the creator, but that he is the sovereign. He is the ruler. He is the one who by his decrees creates whatsoever comes to pass. He is the creator of all. And this is exactly what Israel needed to see if they were to have hope because they were facing some real um, grave circumstances. They were faced with the imminent threat of the destruction of their, their nation, their holy city, their temple by the Babylonian empire. God had already predicted that he would do that. He would bring that kind of judgment upon them. He had predicted that they would go into captivity. And Jeremiah says, they're going to be in that captivity for 70 long years, languishing away as if forgotten by God. And the Lord had told them that they would see the overtaking of the Babylonians by another godless empire, the Persians, but that God would be at work even among those people for the good of his children. The question is, in all of these things that are going to happen to the people of Israel, and all of the things that they're going to face, and all of the good and all of the bad, especially in all of the bad, where is God? Where is our God? Where is the one whom we call upon? Where is he? And this is Isaiah's answer now. This is the Lord's answer. Our text is going to begin in verse 7, but let's actually go back and start in verse 1, just to get the whole context here. Isaiah 45, verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus. This is a future king, not even yet born, a king of the Persians. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places and will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through bars of iron. Here's a godless Persian king, and the Lord says, I'm going to take down everything that stands in your way. I'm going to knock down the mountains that are in your way. I'm going to bust open the doors and I'm going to prosper you. And then he says in verse three, and I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes of the, in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, whom I have chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that, my, that people may know where? From the rising of the sun in the east and from the west, that people all across the globe may know that, I, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And then he says, verse 7, I form and create. What does God create? He says, I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord 
who does these things, who does all these things. Shower, oh heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness, and let the earth open, receive that, so that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. I'll bring this about. So, verse 9, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you doing? Or, your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, his mother, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. I have commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. In the first case, I want you to see in verse 7 that the Lord begins by elaborating on the scope of his creative work. He says that he is the creator of both light and darkness. That he is the creator, the one who forms both well-being and calamity. The Lord does it all. To say it another way, there are no conditions that are not the creation of God. And this is, of course, the implication of the fact that there is only, what? One God. There is no God of the heavens and God of the earth and God of the land and God of the sea, God of light and God of darkness, God of order and God of chaos. There is one God and one God alone. If there is some circumstance, if there is some thing in the earth, it is all ultimately due to whom? Due to God. There is no other ultimate source of anything in the world. Every other cause is a secondary cause. There is nothing ultimate. There is nothing else in the category of God. God alone creates all that is, including both light and darkness, including, and here's the harder thing, right, for us, God is the creator of both well-being and of calamity. And I think what the Lord is doing here is combating kind of dualism that often pervades the world's thinking about deity. That there are different elements of creation that are ultimately attributable to different powers. Um, This is seen eventually in the 
um, the, the, the theology, the, the cosmology and the, uh, the, the, the belief system of the Persian people, which will eventually become Zoroastrianism, named after Zoroaster, which really was at its height during the time of Cyrus, which is what Isaiah foresees here. And in, in Zoroastrianism, there was um, a supreme force of, of light and goodness and order and truth called Asha. And then on the other hand, there was Druj, the supreme force of chaos and darkness and falsehood. And these two sort of independent forces were battling it out for ultimate control. That was, that's the worldview into which God speaks this word from the prophet Isaiah. There is only one God who is ultimate over everything. And I mean both light and darkness, both well-being and calamity. You think of all the calamities that come upon the world. And when Israel experienced the calamities that came upon them, what were they to say? Where is God? And the, the answer from the Lord is, I am the author. I am the one who creates all of these things. You know, even we today uh, struggle often with this kind of dualistic thinking. When, when something good happens to us, when something positive as we perceive it happens to us, we say, oh, the Lord has been so what? He's been so gracious. He's really been at work. And when something that we perceive as not very pleasant or not good in any, in any way that we can understand, we, we, look, we, we experience that and, and we say, where is God? What is he doing? Have you abandoned me? God, have you forgotten? Where are you? Right? Isn't that an expression of this kind of sense of dualism? Make no mistake. This is not to, to say that God is the author of evil. We're told very clearly in the scripture, James chapter 1, let no one say when he is tempted. This is temptation to sin, okay? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And this is a very clear statement from the Lord that he is not the author of evil. He is the ultimate cause. God is the ultimate cause of all things, but he is not the immediate cause of all things, that is, of evil in particular. And the scriptures seem to place the blame for sin on that being in most immediate relation to that sin. God nevertheless decrees all things, and his motive in decreeing even calamity, and yes, even, even evil, his motive in decreeing that is always and forever righteous and good and holy. You remember at the end of Joseph's calamities, when he found himself sold into slavery by his own flesh and blood who hated him, were jealous of him, was lied about, and because of that lie was cast into prison 
was there forgotten about by someone that he helped and languishing there until finally God remembered him and raised him back up. And at the end, when his brothers, the very ones who were the the authors of this evil against him, when they stand before him, remember what he says? You meant this to be evil, but God meant this for good. There was two actors involved. There were two intentionalities involved in all that he had experienced. They intended it for evil, but God intended it. Did God intend him to be lied about? Did God intend him to be sold? Did God intend him to be left and forgotten? He says God did. And this is the testimony of the scripture itself. The mouth of Joseph. God intended it, but he intended it for good. We may struggle to understand that. But really, the alternative is unthinkable. Just think if God is not sovereign. Would you live? Would you want to live in a world where God was not the ultimate? That's a foolish question. There is no world in which God is not ultimate. I remember um, reading John MacArthur telling that story. Um, in his town, there was a large, well-established, charismatic church nearby. And at one point in that church's history, a number of people left the church and came over to Grace Community Church and began to worship there. And they actually, this, the group of these believers, they were meeting in, in the choir loft of the church. And one day, um, MacArthur was uh, in conversation with some of them. And they said, the reason that we left is that we could no longer live under the sovereignty of Satan. And that whole phrase, you know, to anybody who's, who's entrenched in the Bible, just sounds so wrong, the sovereignty of Satan. And they said, We were so burdened just all the time by this fact that Satan might come into our house and kill your baby or, you know, cause your baby to be smothered. And we were going around the house and praying Satan out of this room and the demons out of that room and believing that they said Satan could give you cancer and Satan wanted you sick and God wanted you well and Satan wanted you to have a calamity and God didn't. So if if you got a calamity or you got sick and something bad was happening, Satan was taking over your life. This is the way they saw it. And they called it, MacArthur says, they called it the sovereignty of Satan. And one of them said to me, he says, we had people in this group, in our group, who were suffering from panic attacks because of this. Heart racing palpitations. I mean, they were literally terrified because of the fact that maybe Satan was in charge of their life. And it all came to a, a dramatic head one Wednesday night in their church when a so-called prophet came to their assembly and began to preach there. And he, he gave forth a prophecy. Um, the, the pastor was a, a, a great preacher all over the world and would do miracles. And he was well known. And as, as, as he was preaching, the pastor of the church, as this, this guest preacher was there, the pastor of the church fell over and died. And, John MacArthur went to the funeral of this pastor, and uh, the question was, well, was that prophecy true? And he says, here's the answer I got. Well, the prophecy was true, 
the prophecy about this pastor that he would go around the world and he would preach and he would be famous. It was, it was true, but it was so threatening. The prophecy from God was so threatening that Satan came down and he killed him before the prophecy could come true. That's what they had in mind by the idea of the sovereignty of Satan. There's two sort of powers, and they're almost, they're really sort of on equal footing, right? And, and God will do what he can do, but, you know, we've got our wills, and Satan has his will, and we're all just sort of competing in this, this realm. Friends, either God's will is ultimately the deciding factor in all things, or else you live in a world where Satan and sinners are really in control. <laughs> what a fearful thing. What a, do you see why I say this is the foundation of a Christian's comfort, this belief in the sovereignty of God? Not something to cause us to be anxious in, in, in our souls, reconciling how God can be sovereign, and, and yet we're responsible, but to rest to joy in the fact that God is actually in control, that the God who is good and righteous and true is, 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 is the one really ultimately bringing all things into being. God's creation of all things, including those things that happen to us, is a comfort when we recognize that he is a good and righteous God. And even the wickedness that he ordains he ordains for his own good purposes. In Acts chapter 2, remember that Peter preached this way. He preached about the crucifixion of Jesus, that Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of God, was slain by wicked hands, by ungodly sinful acts. And yet in the next breath, he says, this was according to the determinate counsel of God. God did this. Who did it? Wicked hands did it. But who did it? God did it, right? God creates all things that come to pass. He creates all things in the physical world, the light and the dark, and all of the things in the world in which we live, of our social lives, of, of blessings and, and well-being and calamity. On the other hand, he is the creator of it all. And the most evil act in all of human history, the crucifixion of Jesus, the most wicked, filthy, ungodly, rebellious act against the creator God was in fact by God the greatest display of his love and his grace for all of human humankind. The, what, what man meant for the most evil of purposes, God meant for the greatest of purposes. If you can't you know, if you can't see God's handiwork in, in, in all of the other things that are less of a problem than that one, then we're beyond hope. This is the Lord. He says, I create all things. And then, secondly, in verse 8 now, if I could draw your attention to that verse for a moment, you see that he sovereignly controls all things so as to bring salvation and righteousness in the earth. This is his good intent. So he says, shower, O heavens, from above, let the clouds rain down righteousness. It's like he's pouring down his righteous decrees out of heaven onto this earth. And then he says, let the earth open up and receive my 
sovereign decree. Why? So that salvation and righteousness may spring forth, may bear fruit in the earth. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. And who's the one who's doing all of this? I, the Lord, have created it. In the same way that God creates the rain from the heavens to soak into the earth and cause it to bring forth fruit, he creates both calamity and well-being and causes them to spring forth in his perfect wisdom in a way that will bring forth salvation and righteousness for his people. This is the God's good intent. His intent is for his people, for their salvation. Now, they would never choose the way he would bring about righteousness in their land. I mean, most of us wouldn't. Most of us would not choose calamity as a means by which we might see the righteous salvation of God manifest. We would say, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup away from me. We would perhaps even buck against it. Perhaps even question God. Perhaps even complain to the Almighty. But I want us to remember that he is wise, wise beyond human understanding and good and kind beyond all human measure. In 1858, the Swedish Lutheran pastor Jonas Sandell and his 26-year-old daughter were on a lake in Sweden, journeying across that lake by boat when they experienced a tragic accident. And Jonas, in the course of that journey, ended up falling overboard and drowning in the lake. Her beloved father drowned in front of her. However, a few years later, Carolina wrote these words. Day by day, And with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in the Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best, lovingly. It's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. And her heart was stayed, resting in the God who controls all things, who creates both well-being and calamity for his good purposes to bring about righteousness and salvation in the earth. And God knows exactly, and this is what is absolutely astounding to me, that God knows exactly what measure of your day-to-day needs to be filled with well-being and what measure needs to be filled with calamity in order to bring about what he intends for your life. Wise and good beyond all measure. He knows in his inscrutable wisdom. He knows exactly how to sanctify you. Now you think about how hard that is, right? How hard it is to to sanctify someone, to make them holy, 
to cause them to see God and to love him and to have a heart trans. You think of how hard that is for you. God knows exactly all of the means that need to come together to bring about that sanctification in your life, just like he did in the life of this nation of Israel. How to purify those people. He is the author of it all. And then the, in verses 9 to 12, in verses 9 to 12, the Lord insists on his prerogative as creator to do whatever he wills to do. And he gives two illustrations in those verses, right? Take a look through 9, 10 especially. Two illustrations of his prerogative as creator of all things to do whatever he wills. The first is that of a potter, verse 9. Imagine a, a potter at work in his shop. And the shelves behind him are lined with rows and rows of all kinds of vessels of various shapes and sizes, all made for different functions, different purposes. There are little oil lamps and there are big water pots and there are all kinds of things all around the floor and the shelving of his shop. And there he is hunkered over the wheel, spinning that. And with with uh, with weathered hands, he's, he's molding that clay into a, a new shape. And, and the clay speaks up with a, an unexpected voice. What do you think you're doing? Why are you making me like this? You didn't even give me handles. Absurd, right? And it is absurd. I mean, pots. One pot among so many pots. We're not even talking about the same category of being as this intelligent craftsman who's honed his skills in making just what he intends to make and and who is the maker and by rights is sovereign over that pot what kind of foolishness would that be just absurd paul uses of course this very illustration in romans chapter 9 when he's talking about a very challenging subject god's election god's choice to show mercy saving mercy to some while passing over others. And he says that much as the it makes as, as much sense for the clay to have a debate with the man who shapes that clay, that inanimate clay, as it does for man to argue with a whole nother category of being God as to why God has shown mercy to some and not to others. And his answer at the end of the day, after all other answers are exhausted, his answer is the potter has a right to make one vessel for one purpose and another for another. He's the potter. And not only is we have the illustration of a potter here, but we have in verse 10 another illustration, don't we? You see how he sort of shifted the imagery a little bit from a potter to a parent, right? a father, a mother. What child says to his parent, what are you doing? Why did you bring me forth this way? Why did you make me this way? This is, 
in this case, it's not only absurd, it is improper. It is unrighteous, ungodly. Not only absurdity here, impropriety of such a situation for a, a child to speak such to his parent. And friends, let me just remind us that all of our demanding questions of God when we experience calamity are just as improper. Now, I want to differentiate between a questioning of God in a submissive way, seeking to understand some of what he intends for us as he's revealed it in his word, and even expressing our, uh, our perplexity uh, our lack of understanding, sometimes pouring out in raw ways our feelings to the Lord, but really coming back and saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I want to distinguish between that and demanding kind of accusations that sometimes fly out of the mouths of people who name the name of God, the name the name of Christ, when God allows great tragedy in their life or something that they don't desire and they don't understand. Why, God? What are you doing? I can't believe in a God who would do something like this. The Lord is the potter. and He is the parent. Our demanding of God like that to give an account of himself is not only absurd, it is indecent. And then the Lord does, in verse 11, bid them to inquire from him with regard to what he has actually revealed, with regard to his prophecies, his predictions. Verse 11, the beginning of the verse, thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. You know, we're sort of invited into that. And of course, this is what the Lord has been doing all along through this chat, this section of Isaiah, right? The Lord is saying, I will speak to you what is yet to come. All along, he's given this as a testimony of his deity and his sovereignty. He predicted the Babylonian invasion over a century before it happened, when they weren't even a world power yet. He predicted the Persian victory over Babylon. He specifically named King Cyrus of Persia as the one who would give the decree to go back into the promised land over 150 years before that ever happened. Ask of me, the Lord says, with regard to what I have revealed. Search, seek, inquire. The Lord is not shutting you down and saying, you don't need to know anything. He's revealing himself to us, right? Such a gracious God. There are many things, of course, that God does not reveal. But for those things that he has revealed, he invites us, he implores us to enter into them and to inquire into them, to examine them, to believe them, to proclaim them in the face of calamity as well as in the face of blessing. Deuteronomy 29, 29 reminds us that the secret things, the things that are not revealed belong to the Lord alone. But the things that are revealed are for us. They're for us and for our children to obey them, to do them, to live in them, to inquire of them. And this is what the Lord is doing with his people here. He says, I've told you what I'm intending to do, and you should, you should ask me about that. You should seek me about that. You should believe what I'm telling you. And likewise, you know, with us, the Lord has revealed a lot about what he intends for us, hasn't he? He's revealed our individual futures, what he, in, in the big sense, of what he intends for us. Now, he hasn't revealed everything in every minute detail about why he is bringing about those great ends in this particular way. And that's where we have to say, Lord, you are the potter, I'm the clay. 
you're the father, I'm the child. But it's one thing to ask and inquire like that, Lord, what have you revealed? To study his prophetic word. It's another thing to make demands of God as if he owes you some kind of explanation for every course of action that he ordains. And so the end of verse 11, look at the end of that now. He switches gears a little bit. After encouraging their inquiry about what he has revealed, he now turns the tables and he says, now will you, what's the next word? Will you command me? Are you going to make demands of me concerning my people and the work of my hands? Remember, he's the parent and the potter. Are you going to make demands of me concerning my people and the work of my hands? You creature, you are not the one to command. It's the other way around, right? Verse 12, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded. That's the same word. I commanded. Will you command? No, I command. I command the host of heaven. He alone is God, not you, not me. He alone commands the hosts of heaven and the men of the earth. And finally, in verse 13, he reminds Israel that he is the one who creates and prospers this King Cyrus who is to come. Verse 13, I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city. That is, he will build Jerusalem and set my exiles free, not for price or reward. He will not sell them as slaves, but he will set them free, says the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says, it, the Lord through Isaiah says, it was me, it was, it was I myself who stirred up, who raised up, raised up the king of the Persians to do these things. That word raised up, I raised him up, I stirred him up with regard to King Cyrus here. But the, the same term is also used back in chapter 10, verse 26, of raising up the Assyrians to come and lay siege to Israel, to Judah. So the Lord creates both well-being and he creates calamity. But what I want you to notice in this verse is the character of God in his sovereign creative work. I have stirred him up. Take a look again. Final verse, 13. I have stirred him up in what? In righteousness. Does that mean Cyrus himself was, was righteous? No, he was a pagan. Does that mean that all of his deeds were righteous? No, far from it. But the nature of God's work through Cyrus was righteous. So however we might admit, as, as I think we must, that God's work and his purposes are inscrutable beyond our comprehension of their purposes in the immediate sense. As much as we admit that, we must also declare that God's purposes are never arbitrary, but they are always righteous. And that includes his purposes in election his purposes in ordaining whatever he ordains in your life, it is always done in righteousness. Inexplicable in human terms, but all of his works are rooted in his own goodness and in his own justice. God does all things right. 
So this morning, are you, are you submitted to this creator of all things, this sovereign of all? Are you submitted to his, his right as creator, to his prerogative as the author of your very being to do with you what he wills? Can you say that today? I'm, I am resting. I'm submitted to that. I'm, I, I, I acknowledge that. You know what the Lord is doing by this is creating a real humility in his people. Because, God be merciful to us, we are so quick to think that we are wise beyond all measure. That my own understanding is the measure of reality. And it's what, it's the measure of righteousness. It is so far from the truth. Whatever it is that you're dealing with, may, whether it's well-being or calamity in your life, have you come to a point where you've said, you know what, at the end of the day, when I've exhausted all of my thinking about the purposes of God that are revealed, and I still walk away confused, I'm willing to say God is God and I'm not. God is sovereign. He has the prerogative to do what he will. At the end of the day, can we look at him as our father, the author of our very existence and say, it's his right to bring into existence what he wills. Whether you're grappling with that doctrine that you find hard to receive or that circumstance that you can't appreciate or that loss for which you see no purpose. When you say to yourself, God, why did you allow this? What are you doing? Where are you? What are you up to? Why? And there don't seem to be any clear answers. Brothers and sisters, can we walk away and say, at the end of the day, God is God. It's his right to do whatever he wills. And I believe and I confess that all that he does is done in righteousness. And I will rest in that. That requires not only humility, and submission, but trust. Real faith and trust. The end of the day, God's answer to Job. Remember, remember, we read there wasn't much of an answer as we would like to have answers. God didn't inform him of all of the details of his workings and the purposes for every one of those movements. At the end of the day, he simply said, "I am God, and you're not." And that is to say, sometimes we're called to just have to rest in that. We're going to have to learn to say, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. I, you, thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Lord, grant us that grace to see you as you really are, and to rest in your righteousness, and even to love and adore that righteousness on display in all that you create. We pray you'd help us.